My name is Myra, and I'm so excited to be the host of this month's MediCurrent episode. I have a question for you. Have you ever had cramps, headaches, sore muscles, etc.? Have you ever taken medicine, maybe a Tylenol, to ease the painful symptoms? If you answered yes, you have taken a subset of drugs called painkillers. Painkillers are very interesting medications. There are many different types, and each affects the human body in a unique way. You may have heard of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory painkillers, such as ibuprofen or Advil, and you may have heard of classic non-aspirin pain relievers, such as the well-known Tylenol, but have you heard of a third class of painkillers called opioids? Opioids are considered to be the most potent painkillers and include drugs such as morphine, codeine, and fentanyl. They are used for anesthesia and to alleviate very severe cases of patient pain, such as chronic pain and post-surgery pain. But They are particularly significant because they have had and continue to have a profound impact on our communities. In an effort to better understand the impact of opioids, MagiCurrent has chosen to make this episode's focus a biography of opioids, a review of their history, their biochemistry, and their socio-political effects. Today we are joined by Dr. Norman Buckley to break down and discuss the history of opiates, including their original need, their derivation, and their impact today. As you said, my name is Norm Buckley. I'm a professor emeritus of anesthesia at McMaster University. For the past 30 years or so, I've been involved in uh, providing anesthesia clinical care as well as acute post-operative pain management and chronic pain care, and really have seen uh, a, uh, I guess, the whole gamut of use of opioids from people being afraid of using them to being uh, very liberal with them. And then now we're in this uh, challenging time when we see a lot of complications with opioids used in the community recreationally and for medical purposes, but also real challenges for people who need them getting access to them appropriately. So uh, it's an interesting problem and it's all tied up in chronic pain care. Alrighty, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to um, educate us and talk to us on these topics. To start off, we will be delving into the past of opiates, investigating their use and demand for the 21st century. So So. that's kind of fun. Um, It's very interesting. If you think about people being worried about synthetic versus uh, natural products, opioids are one of the original natural medications. Um, they're actually uh, derived from uh, from poppy plants, and uh, you may you may be aware of uh, some of the interesting side conflicts that have gone on in the in the Middle East, particularly Afghanistan, or in the Far East, uh, you know, where there are uh, large areas uh, devoted to growing poppies to uh, to extract the uh, the active opioid agents, which ultimately become, uh, you know, from opioid from opium to uh, you know, further refined into other drugs, including morphine, heroin, um, things, you know, a variety of things, and both uh, licit and illicit transportation, sale, and use around the world. And it, historically, it's kind of interesting because. 
they were a product uh, so-called of the Orient. Um, and there's a, a piece of uh, not very stellar British history called the Opium Wars, where in fact the British went to war with the Chinese in order to convince the Chinese to uh, grow, produce, sell, and deliver opium uh, to, the, uh, to the British population. That was seen, I think, both as an intoxicant, but also as having uh, some medical value as a, as a painkiller. Uh, so, but it's it's really quite a checkered history, and uh, it's uh, interesting because it is tied up in, uh, as I said, both use as an intoxicant, and if you watch a lot of old, uh, or if you read a lot of old British novels, people talk about using laudanum, um, it's often used as a sedative or a painkiller, uh, and uh, there's actually, there's one version of the Wyatt Earp story where uh, the uh, one of the characters is addicted to laudanum in the wild west and uh, it's really quite tragic but uh, anyway so yeah uh, an interesting history but also very clear medical value Alrighty. so now that we learned a little bit about the history of opioids um, now we have some more specific questions for dr buckley our first question is where did opioids come from were they introduced from another country and were they created by accident that, that's actually a great question, Myra. Um, I think it's like so many other um, medications that have come from natural products. If you think of things like aspirin is actually derived from uh, originally from uh, willow bark, you know, the, the acetylsalicylic acid uh, is a, you know, originally a natural product. I think it's probably produced chemically now, but uh, history going back to Greek and Roman history talks about using the product of the poppy plant as a sedative or as an intoxicant. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. Um, just to move into our next question, when did opioids become used as a painkiller? I think, I think opioids throughout their history have been used as a painkiller. You know, again, uh, you'll see references in in very old histories um, about the value of opium, for example, as a uh, as a painkiller uh, or to induce sleep. Um, but then, you know, as as time progresses and as we got more systematic and a bit more technological about our uh, approach to medicine. Uh, people identified different compounds or different ways to uh, to distill active ingredients from natural products, you know, like like poppies, uh, and so then we started to uh, to create products that were used, you know, had predictable potency, and were used um, in a sort of uh, systematic fashion as medications, often as painkillers. Um, in the early days of surgery, also using them as part of anesthesia to uh, to try to provide uh, pain relief during the course of surgery or, or after surgery. Awesome. Um, what medications were used in their place before they became a universally used painkiller? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Also, 
Um, you, know, you hear some funny things about uh, people using alcohol as a painkiller, for example. Um, I mentioned aspirin earlier. You know, the uh, the willow bark <clears throat> actually had a very funny conversation with somebody in the in the pre-op clinic once who told me that uh, they were allergic to anti-inflammatory drugs because they cause bleeding, but uh, they had once been told to use a willow bark extract as an analgesic because it was a natural product. What they didn't realize that it was in fact ASA, which is the sort of iconic anti-inflammatory drug, and they immediately developed bruising all over their body. But things like aspirin were used as a, uh, a painkiller, other anti-inflammatory drugs, acetaminophen. But I think if certainly throughout the 20th century, opioids were pretty commonly used and were, you know, they're often thought of or recognized as the definitive painkiller. Awesome. That's really, really interesting how a lot of even the common medicines that we use today to treat headaches or, you know, muscle pain were still used in the past in kind of the place of a lot of opioids. So that's really interesting. Awesome. So our next question is, what has made the demands for opioids so high over the last century? And how do you predict this demand to change? Uh, well, that that's actually, a, a, again, I hate to keep saying this, but that's also an interesting question. <laughs> um, there, there are several things that drive the demand for opioids. Uh, you have an illicit uh, so-called recreational market. Um, right. And that really drove the uh, you know, production and distribution of things like uh, cannabinoids, uh, you know, marijuana, also uh, morphine or dilaudid or heroin, a much more refined product. And then other hallucinogens, you know, things like LSD and ecstasy and MDMA and things like that, that people use for a variety of reasons, in addition to alcohol, which is kind of the most widely accepted, most widely used um, sort of mood altering drug um, that also has sort of sedative and analgesic properties. But part of the part of the clinical demand for opioids was as we started to recognize how common chronic pain was, um, there was uh, there was a drive in the medical world to find compounds that would be effective for treating chronic pain. Uh, and you know, the, in all probability, chronic pain, if you think about it, has been around as, as long as we have. Uh, a lot of chronic pain comes from degenerative conditions like arthritis or following injuries. You know, we, we estimate, for example, that about 20% of the Canadian population suffers from chronic pain that's sufficient to have an impact on their ability to carry out their daily activities and, and really enjoy life. So in the medical model of thinking, which, you know, in, you're in the medical business now, you're, in, you're being taught a medical model of thinking, which is to look at a problem make a diagnosis, identify a treatment for the problem, administer the treatment, and hopefully things go back to normal. Um, your patient recovers from the problem and moves on. 
uh, chronic pain, like uh, some other conditions, uh, notably things like mental health problems or chronic diseases like diabetes, uh, some GI diseases, some kidney diseases, they don't go away. They, they have a, an ongoing impact on your life. Um, and in the chronic pain world, it's uh, recognized that pain is a function of not just a physiological injury, say after surgery or a trauma or something like that, but it's contributed to, uh, because it's a subjective experience, it's contributed to by the underlying psychological state of the individual who experiences the pain. And parts of the, parts of the pain condition are also uh, affected by the social setting. And that can work in a variety of ways. Uh, for, one of, for one thing, we know that patients who are of uh, lower socioeconomic status, who have unstable living situations, who have chronic diseases, uh, who have other mental health conditions, are, are also more likely to experience and report chronic pain problems. So there's, there's quite a complex interaction so it's not like pneumonia, for example, where somebody develops a cough and a fever, you do an x-ray, you identify they have pneumonia, you give them an antibiotic, it gets better and they go back to their regular life. Uh, the, these chronic conditions require a more complex approach, but as a physician, you're one part of that approach and you provide a, uh, you know, a medical model of thinking and so you're looking for a medication or a treatment that can uh, reverse the pain problem. And so opioids uh, actually have pretty good face there. They're, they're recognized as analgesics. Um, they're not terribly toxic in the sense that uh, by and large opioids don't have an effect on kidneys or liver or things like that. There are obvious dose-related side effects. Uh, if you give someone too big a dose of, a, of an opioid, their breathing can slow or even stop. Their blood pressure can drop. Uh, you can obviously kill somebody with an opioid if you give them too big a dose. Um, and then there's the other problem where, in addition to providing painkilling, they also provide a certain elevation of mood and people report that uh, it, the opioids are pretty useful at uh, diminishing anxiety. So they seem to be a, a, a substance to which people will become addicted. And people who are uh, susceptible to being addicted are people who have certain unstable social histories or histories of abuse, uh, histories of men certain mental health conditions, um, you know, who have previously abused drugs or alcohol. There, those are people who are at risk for um, becoming addicted to opioids. Uh, and, so, and that's a significant problem with opioids. But on the face of it, at least initially, opioids are pretty safe if you control the dose. And a um, significant number of people report that they lead to improvement in their pain problems. But the challenge is that the more you get into circulation, uh, the more you prescribe them, uh, and what we saw in the late 1900s, early 2000s was <clears throat> rising prescription of fairly potent opioids that were developed to be released on a time release basis. And it was uh, 
you know, physicians became quite comfortable prescribing these and they moved into the illicit uh, market because um, it wasn't that hard to convince your physician that you needed one or two more and you could sell those. They could become part of a, you know, a cocktail that somebody took at a party or could be, you know, crushed and injected, things like that. And so what we saw in the late 1900s, early 2000s was the uh, prescribed narcotics started to push uh, the other illicit narcotics out of the market. And uh, we saw that heroin, for example, almost stopped being uh, sold in, uh, in Hamilton, for example, and it was replaced by people reselling prescribed narcotics. And, and that's been a real problem. And we started to see uh, opioid-related deaths from prescribed narcotics that had been diverted into the illicit market. And that led to a discussion of how to manage, how to get physicians to prescribe opioids appropriately to patients for whom they were most beneficial in doses that didn't, didn't lend to a diversion of the drugs into other settings. And that's, that's really where I got into the, uh, into the opioid guideline business, because in 2010, uh, there was a guideline created and we took over responsibility for disseminating it in Canada from McMaster. Right. That's really interesting. So from my understanding, um, you would say that the use of opioids in healthcare kind of correlates with the timeline and um, sort of the start of the currently ongoing opioid crisis, correct? I think, well, I, I think that's fair. One of the really interesting questions is whether or not it is entirely fair to attribute the opioid crisis to physician prescribing, right. but there's no question that prescribing was taking place in large enough volumes that it permitted uh, prescribed narcotics to be diverted into the illicit markets. I mean, we, we, we just saw that quite a bit. Now, some of, those, some of those prescription narcotics were diverted not just by people getting a prescription and selling part of it off themselves, but part of it was, you know, people would actually, uh, organizations would steal, you know, a container load of these drugs. And because they were manufactured by uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, they were stamped with their production marks. They were known to be safe in terms of not having contaminants, um, you know, high quality drugs. It was pretty easy to sell them. So, you know, the the illicit market drove some of that. But what we've seen over time is that as we tried to restrain physician prescribing of opioids, and that led to some restriction of the supply of of uh, pharmaceuticals, prescription pharmaceuticals uh, in the illicit markets, they were replaced by. Uh, significantly more potent drugs that are easy to produce you know if you if you have a chemistry degree and a, even a relatively simple lab my understanding is it's pretty easy to produce a very potent narcotic like fentanyl and or fentanyl analogs and those drugs started to get into the illicit market partly too because the the drugs are a thousand times more potent on a weight per weight basis than things like heroin so a relatively small package of fentanyl could be broken down amongst a very large number of saleable pills, whereas an equivalent amount of heroin would occupy a, a shipping container, for example. So 
that and and that that uh, sort of preponderance of very very potent synthetic narcotics is one of the things that's driving the very high death rate from opioid overdoses now to continue we will now be discussing the biochemistry behind opiates and how their chemical structure affects their biological function our first question is as you know the base molecule for opioids is found in poppies have we always created opioids from poppies or have there been other ways to make them Okay, so I, I think when we started talking, you know, about the history of opioids and poppies and the opium wars and things like that, uh, when we first discovered opioids, they really were derived from poppies and they were called opium poppies and hence the word opioids. Um, but since then, we've gone on to develop uh, synthetic molecules that have similar effects. Um, you know, as analgesics and sedatives and so on, but they're they're created uh, through the magic of chemistry. So, drugs like Demerol, for example, uh, meperidine is a synthetically created molecule that has many effects similar to those of the uh, the opioids that are derived from opium poppies. Um, heroin is a very refined version of morphine. Um, but again, it's derived from uh, opium poppy. Things like methadone, for example, were synthetic narcotics that were developed to try to provide consistent analgesia, uh, but with a longer half-life, so that you didn't have to administer them so often. Right. That makes sense. My next question for you is, what makes the molecules in poppies or even um, when they're synthetically created in a lab, um, what makes them so effective at creating the opioid high? Well, that was a great question for years. Interestingly enough, about the time I started in medicine, so late 70s, early 80s, some researchers in San Francisco, particularly a guy named Saul Schneider, discovered that the body actually has receptors specifically for uh, opioid molecules. So these are the so-called endorphins and enkephalins um, that are created by the body. And they have, there are specific receptors in the central nervous system, as well as the peripheral nervous system where these drugs act. And some of those receptors occur in parts of the brain that control mood <clears throat> and so some of them some of them live on the spinal cord where they're part of the whole sensory system that brings uh, peripheral nerve impulses associated with injury and pain up the spinal cord into the central into the brain and so th that's what's referred to as the substantial gelatinosa in the spinal cord and there are opioid receptors there and if they're occupied, they slow down or in, inhibit that incoming information about pain. So the long and the short of it is one of the things that makes you know, opioids very effective is the fact that the body actually has receptors for opioids that can lead to their effects both on mood, on level of alertness, on gastric motility and, and intestinal motility. What, what do people talk about as a side effect of say taking codeine for pain is constipation. Why does that happen? Because 
opioids slow um, gut motility and so you're you don't move things out of the stomach into the intestines and through the intestines as quickly as usual and so you become constipated um, and then as i said in the spinal cord they uh, suppress incoming painful information or they slow its transmission so they're effective analgesics in that regard um, and so uh, and the high, as, again, the high is because some opioid receptors live in parts of the brain that are associated with, with your mood. So um, there you go. We are designed to make effective use of opioid molecules that are derived from things like poppies. Alrighty. So you mentioned that um, the body has receptors with which the um, opioid molecules interact with. Is there a chemical reaction that takes place or a specific process that takes place when um, the opioid molecule and the receptor come into contact? So the, the process may vary a little bit uh, from one drug to another. Um, if you take the example of morphine, for example, Morphine has a direct effect on what are called mu receptors. Uh, so the mu opioid or mu um, enkephalin receptors. And those receptors, mu receptors are the ones that have the most to do with the analgesic effect. There are other drugs like, um, well, first of all, there's other opioid receptors. So things like delta receptors and sigma receptors, and they have different, uh, different physiologic or psychic effects. Um, and different drugs will, will, different opioids will interact more or less with some of those other receptors as well as the mu receptors. Um, a drug like codeine, for example, basically by itself, it's not an active opioid. Um, but when it gets into the body, most of us, probably 70, 75% of the population has an enzyme that converts codeine into morphine. And once it's converted into morphine, it becomes active as an analgesic and it has the ability to uh, act on opioid receptors in the body. But the portion of the population that doesn't have that uh, enzyme can't make use of codeine as an analgesic, you know, which partly accounts for the fact that some people will tell you, oh, I, I take Tylenol 3 for my pain, but it doesn't make any difference. I take Percocet, which is oxycodone, which is doesn't require conversion to an active agent, and it works very well. So the painkiller effect happens by the interaction of the opioid, mostly with the mu receptors in various places. Uh, the addictive part is that's somewhat more complicated. Um, it, in part, there are people who are physiologically in or sort of pre, I won't say predetermined, but they're, they're structured physiologically in such a way that they are more likely to develop a, a dependency on an opioid if they're exposed to it. Um, and it seems to have to do both with the, the nature and type of their opioid receptors, also their underlying psychological uh, makeup. Uh, there are people where exposure to opioids triggers dopamine release, which is a, the so-called feel-good chemical. And uh, 
that is very uh, rewarding to them. And so they will continue to seek exposure to an opioid in order to generate that good feeling. And there are other people who are struggling with, um, say, bad feelings or you know, feelings of anxiety or inadequacy or past histories of trauma that have led them to um, I, I'll say uncom feel uncomfortable, but it, it that sort of trivializes it, you know. The, but you know, one of the things you hear about, for example, is that indigenous populations are at risk for being addicted to opioids, and it's partly attributed to the fact that uh, many members of First Nations communities were subjected to abuse either directly you know, through their interactions with things like residential schools or indirectly through the effect of the abuse on their parents and grandparents, for example, then affecting generations to follow. And so as a result, they suppress some of those uncomfortable feelings by using opioids. Um, it's not a conscious process. It just is a process where they discover that if they take this medication, they tend to feel better. And so they continue to take it and you know that becomes a problem in and of itself sometimes uh, either because of the things you have to do to get access to the medication or the fact that accessing the medication becomes your sole goal in life you you don't pursue feeling good in any other uh, any other way so um you know just briefly the the painkiller effect is through a series of interactions with receptors in the body and the problem of addiction is more complex but it has to do both with the existence of those receptors and the location of those receptors but also the setup either physiologically or psychologically or socially that predisposes someone to become addicted to a substance whatever it is so the final section of our discussion involves delving into the socio-political effects of opioids, which involves investigating their impacts on our community. Um, one of the first questions I have for you is, as we discussed, there has been a correlation between the use of opioids in modern healthcare and the opioid crisis. My question to you is, does addiction start right away, or can someone be on an opiate medication and then become addicted years later? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, you know, we talked a little bit about addiction and addiction is, is a complicated problem. There, it's, it's a combination of um, risk factors in the patient, both physiological factors as well as um, things to do with their upbringing. Uh, we've learned to recognize the importance of things called the ACEs, adverse events of childhood where um, people who are people who are exposed to traumas as in their childhood and the traumas can be abuse of themselves sexual abuse physical abuse emotional abuse but it may be exposure to traumatic situations if they're say they lose a parent particularly in the you know some sort of accident or suddenly through some other illness that, that can make them uh, that can have an adverse effect on them, can make them at risk for developing behavior problems in the future, including addiction. Um, mood disorders uh, are a risk factor for addiction, but also things like uh, social instability, 
Um, the simply the social setting that people are in can uh, make them more or less likely to become addicted. And then there are certain substances that to which people are more likely to become addicted because of the physiological effects. So things like uh, cocaine, um, opioids, um, you know, some of the some of the other synthetic drugs uh, that uh, people may become addicted to. So you know, addiction, addiction, sort of by definition, isn't going to start right away. Uh, because addiction is defined in part as, as a behavioral problem where the pursuit of the substance to which you're addicted starts to have, uh, you, you pursue that even though there's obvious adverse consequences physiologically or socially or emotionally. So even though you got fired from your job for showing up drunk, you continue to drink, uh, even though you're spouse leaves you, your dog leaves you, you know, your, your, your friends abandon you, you continue to pursue use of the substance. Uh, even though you start using all your money to buy it and you lose your home, you don't nourish yourself properly, you're deteriorating physically, you continue to use the substance. That, that's really part of the definition of addiction is, is continued use in the face of obvious harms. Um, it's one of the things that has led to the idea that restricting access to addictive substances is not necessarily going to solve the problem for people who are already addicted. Because even though it's illegal to use certain substances, people who are addicted to them will pursue them. Um, you know, you could, you could make a similar, um, you could make a similar comment about you know, let's say in in certain countries, some religions are prohibited by law, and yet their adherents continue to pursue those religions. Um, so even though it's illegal, you don't stop doing it. And, and addiction, again, uh, you don't stop doing it because it's illegal. So maybe you know, may, we may get into this a little bit later, but, um, you know, part of the process of regaining function for an addict is sometimes is providing them with access to safe drugs uh, so that they can stabilize their use of the drug and then start to stabilize the rest of their behavior. So the short answer is addiction does not start right away. It's a process, but there may be individuals who are more likely to quickly become addicted for a variety of reasons, or there may be substances that provide a, a physiological effect, which um, happens with an intensity that makes people more likely to become addicted to it. Um, yeah, so it, it, addiction is a complicated problem for sure, but you know, it, it probably doesn't start right away. If you think about it, we give opioid analgesics to tens of thousands of patients every year for pain control after surgery. They don't all become addicted to opioids because they were exposed to them once. But there are some people who continue to use opioids after we expect that they would have resolved, would have recovered from the acute postoperative pain. And so those may be people who are 
um, who are at risk for being addicted once they are exposed to the medication. As we can understand, the effect of opioids is very, very complex, especially in the socio-political aspect. How has the opioid crisis affected marginalized populations, specifically Indigenous populations? So one of the things about, um, about risk for addiction is that certain populations are at greater risk of addiction, and opioids are a product which uh, you know, has been... It's both been used to manipulate populations. I mean, if you have uh, sort of very cynical views about political settings and so on, um, and if you think back to the British opium wars, you do wonder why the British military was so keen on getting uh, Chinese producers to deliver opium to into the British population. What, uh, what were they trying to accomplish by that? Uh, you know, and the cynic might say, you know, what was it? Um, was it Karl Marx that said Re religion is the opiate of the masses? You know, clearly implying that that opioids had some effect, and when given to certain parts of the population, you know, they they tended to control behavior. Um, but you know, marginalized populations, lower socioeconomic status, unstable living situations. Um, you know, mental health disorders, difficulty you know, accessing employment or uh, maintaining employment. Um, those are populations who are also, in addition to being at higher risk of having chronic pain problems, they're also at higher risk of uh, having uh, or, or having uh, problems with addiction to opioids and other drugs. And then indigenous populations have an added layer of not only sort of instability of their social structures as you know communities have been moved or consolidated former formerly hunter-gatherer type of societies were forced into uh, living in in single locations um, you know the access to the animal populations that they used to live off became less. Uh, their societies were broken down by taking, taking children away, putting them in residential schools. Um, you know, all those sorts of things create both, they both destroy the social structure that could be supportive for an individual or a group that were having difficulties and needed to be supported and directed towards a positive recovery. And they also create uh, underlying you know, psychopathology that makes people more susceptible to being addicted. So it's, it's partly opioids and it's partly you know, the social setting that, that makes certain populations more at risk. And it, uh, it means that you need, to, uh, you need to think carefully about what your solution to the problem is and, and what are you identifying as the problem and how are you going to pursue it? Um, and the opioid crisis is part of that. But I think people, people have focused on opioids in part because they saw a link to medical behavior. Um, yeah, and you know, rightly or wrongly, there is a, a tendency or a tendency to uh, look at medical behavior and say, look at the problem you caused. That, that's not entirely fair. Um, but look at big pharma, look at the problem you caused by pushing these, pushing physicians to prescribe these drugs. 
there is an element of truth there. Certainly anybody who makes a product is going to make more money if they sell more of the product. So um, it, it's a fascinating situation. You create a corporate structure where increased sales are a sign of success and you put them into a situation where increased sales of some items are actually an indication of a problem. Um, but the corporate structure is not focused on the problem. And you, you ask the corporation whose officially stated purpose is to generate revenue and wealth to then adopt a, uh, a socially responsible stance, but that's not necessarily part of their corporate mission. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very interesting, you know, it's, um, so, but the opioid crisis, I think, is a symptom of several things. One of it, one of them being the fact that there's a lot of chronic pain and we're not very good at treating it. And so we use the tools we have. Unfortunately, it's a hammer and all of the problems are not nails. So, you know, we may be giving opioids to people who are not going to benefit from them or making them available to people who uh, divert them into other uh, other settings and the indigenous populations are at risk of addiction, um, but they may also be at risk of, you know, needing to uh, <clears throat> needing to generate revenue. And maybe maybe they do that by diverting medications uh, you know, because of the instability of their own society. But it's uh, it, the opioid crisis is a multi-layered problem, and it certainly is tied up in social, socio-political problems, as you mentioned at the beginning. Right. So you mentioned that the opioid crisis is a very multi-layered problem. My next question for you is, what are some strategies that have worked to lower the stigma around and the rates of the opioid crisis? So... From a medical standpoint, um, one of the things that happened is in Canada and other countries, uh, there has been a drive to create guidelines that will promote appropriate prescribing of opioids for patients who are likely to benefit and who are at relatively low risk of having complications like addiction or overdose and, and death as a result. Um, there's been a, interestingly enough, the two countries in the world that have the highest rates of prescription are Canada and the United States. Um, many other countries do not have high rates of prescription, even though they have ready access. So Britain, for example, you know, theoretically, because they, they provide all their medications, there's very little restriction on, you know, what medications an individual can be prescribed. Uh, could have a high rate of opioid prescribing, but it doesn't. And it's not clear whether that's because of the, the beliefs of the physicians that do the prescribing or because they have access to other things like physical therapy or counseling that may be appropriate for chronic pain. Uh, and therefore, they don't need to rely on purely pharmacologic solutions. Whereas in North America, physical therapy and counseling are not readily accessible, certainly in Canada in the publicly funded health system. And as a result, physicians tend to default to pharmacologic solutions. So one of the things that we have tried to do to 
to get prescribing rates to what we think might be more appropriate levels is to create guidelines advising physicians on how best to use opioids and what sort of doses to use. Now, the fact is, if 20% of a population has chronic pain, which we know from a number of large health studies, um, in Ontario, at the peak of opioid prescribing, it was about 17% of the population that was getting regular opioid prescriptions. Now, that strikes me as being about right. If you don't have any other option for treatment, 17% of the population sounds like about the proportion of people that you would expect to be prescribed opioids. Um, with changes in attitude, uh, some of it was simply public relations. You know, newspapers started publishing stories about inappropriate prescribing or high prescribing as a cause for the opioid crisis. Physicians began to become anxious about their prescribing behavior, and so they would reduce it. Uh, the opioid guidelines came out suggesting that you could use lower doses than before or maybe not prescribe for certain, certain clinical situations. Um, prescribing dropped to about 14% of the population over the course of about four or five years. Unfortunately, even though prescribing diminished significantly, uh, the rates of death from opioid overdose rose substantially. And in part, that reflected the fact that the, the illicit market that was being supplied by diverted pharmaceutical drugs created by uh, legitimate pharmaceutical companies began to be replaced with these new synthetics, the fentanyl, fentanyl analogs and things, which are very, very potent. And people would use these drugs having no idea how potent they were. They would not be predictable or consistent in their potency. And somebody might take a drug expecting it to have one effect and it had an effect a hundred times greater and they would stop breathing and die. Or they would mix it with uh, alcohol, for example, you know, washing down a narcotic with a couple of shots of bourbon, you know, feels pretty good for a little while and then you stop breathing. Yeah, and so, you know, that, you know, that would suggest that simply restricting access is not the way to prevent deaths from opioid overdoses. Stigma is a big deal. And I hear this all the time from my chronic pain patients. If they go to emergency rooms with whatever problem related to their chronic pain problem or not, when, they're, when the eMERGE physicians and nurses see that they're on chronic narcotics, they treat them as if they were drug-seeking drug addicts. Um, and, you know, I've had people who went in bleeding from Crohn's disease, you know, complaining, you know, I need, I need treatment for my Crohn's disease, which is flaring up. And they saw that they were on methadone as a chronic pain analgesic. And they said, well, we're not going to give you narcotics and sent them home. And that one, they weren't even looking for pain control. They were looking for treatment for their exacerbation of their Crohn's disease. So stigma is a big deal. And, and many patients who are on chronic opioids report that the attitude of their caregivers frequently changes when they become aware that they're on chronic opioids for, uh, for a chronic pain condition. And, and that problem of stigma, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, then a chronic pain patient says, they treated me like a drug addict. Well, you think if you imagine then, you know, a, 
somebody with a job, um, a family who's on an opioid says that they are being stigmatized. How do you think someone who is in fact, you know, uh, addicted to drugs and has deteriorated to the point where they're living on the street, they may not be clean, they may not be well nourished. How do you think they're treated when they come into a clinical setting? You know, and so that issue of stigma is, is really, really problematic. And as much as we say, we believe that drug addiction is a medical problem, we treat it as a social choice and we really stigmatize people who are addicted by implying that they're just being addicted because it's what they want to do. And, you know, they don't, uh, we shouldn't be treat them with the same respect that we treat anybody else who comes in with a medical problem. So I, the short answer is we haven't solved the stigma problem yet. <laughs> right. That makes sense. So now that we've learned a little bit about um, kind of the stigma and maybe some of the strategies to lower the rates of the opioid crisis, my next question for you is how has the pandemic affected the opioid crisis and some of these rates of opioid-related deaths? Uh, the pandemic's made that much worse. Right. Um, and it, you know, if you think back to what is it that leads to addiction? <clears throat> you know, why do people die when they're addicted to opioids? Um, some, a lot, of, a lot of the things have to do with um, mental health disorders, psychological stress, anxiety, and interpersonal isolation. So we, one of, interestingly enough, you know, some of the community, people talk about the, you know, Vancouver, I don't know if you know Vancouver geographically at all, but the, what's referred to as the Lower East Side, uh, East Hastings and Main Street is a, an area where a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of homeless people live. There's a lot of drug addiction, a uh, lot of uh, really people with really disrupted lives. But the, the drug addiction there and intravenous drug use, for example, it, it tends to be quite open and people are aware of you know, the other individuals in their immediate social circles. And so they're not actually alone when they're injecting drugs. So things like giving people naloxone kits to use, they happen to see somebody who looks like they're overdosing is quite effective in those populations because they see each other and they're not they're not sort of socially afraid to say, holy smoke, Bob's overdose. So in, in those social settings, people make effective use of things like naloxone, which is a drug to reverse narcotic overdose. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a nice suburban community and uh, people tend to be a little secretive about their drug use, you go down in your basement and you shoot something up and it turns out to be 100 times more potent than you thought, you're going to be asleep and not breathing and nobody's going to be around to give you your, your narcotic overdose reversal drug. And so being alone is a very high risk for uh, dying of an overdose. Um, and, you know, you may not chat about this with your neighbors. You know, you, you know, the, the guys watching the game may say, Oh yeah, let's go get a couple of brews, but they're not going to say, Oh, Billy wants to shoot up. Somebody better watch him, make sure he doesn't accidentally overdose. Um, so, so that being you know, the pandemic has exacerbated the isolation. So people are using drugs 
they will use them on their own because they're restricted from social interactions and they may use them more frequently or people who are experiencing psychological stress and distress because of the isolation and the anxiety about the effect of the pandemic are going to use drugs. Maybe they'll use drugs they haven't used before or get them from somebody they don't know. And you know, we've seen a huge increase in the number of people dying of drug overdoses during the pandemic. So it's just made that whole situation much, much worse. And it's also reduced their access to supports and treatment. So maybe they used to go to a support group or a, you know, Narcotics Anonymous or a counseling group or their chronic pain patients. Maybe they used to go to a chronic pain uh, program and that program's not available because you know there people are told not to meet and the support that they used to get that allowed them to manage the problems they have is has been withdrawn maybe they can't see their regular physician as often because the you know in our case the hospital restricted visits for 3 months we saw no one in the pain clinic um you know, so how do you renew somebody's medication if they they don't come into the clinic to see you and you know it's time to renew their medication? So maybe they'll go buy drugs from somebody on the street. So the, the pandemic had just had a terrible effect on treatment, access to treatment for people with chronic pain and not just chronic pain, but many things. Um, we've heard that cancers are presenting at a much more advanced state than they used to because people aren't seeing their physicians with the same regularity or getting, they may not even be physically seeing them. They may be reporting symptoms over the phone. And unless the physician's very adept at ferreting out you know, complex problems, they may miss something that they would have picked up if they'd actually seen the person in person. So, so the pandemic has made Lots of healthcare, much worse, but it's really, really had a terrible effect on the loss of life associated with the opioid crisis. Right. On that note, um, just to wrap up, a final question for you is, how can we protect ourselves and others from the opioid crisis and its effects? Ah, the, the holy grail. <laughs> um, there seem to be a number of things. You know, one of... One of the things is, is the whole business of actually treating drug addiction as a medical problem, providing care, providing access to the appropriate, you know, if, if somebody's diabetic and their control is bad and their use of insulin starts to go up, you don't send them to a counseling program to say you have to use less insulin. You know, you just can't use that much insulin. But if somebody with chronic pain is not having good control and they want to increase their use of an opioid, um, you know, that is how we respond. We say, oh, no, we, we're not going to increase your opioid dose. Yeah, and maybe that's appropriate because we have seen that opioids for some people aren't terribly effective for chronic pain. But in, in patients who are addicted, you know, you say we're going to cut off your access to the drug to which you're addicted. Boy, that is uh, that pretty much guarantees that they're going to go and find an illicit source which is not safe. So to protect addicts from the problems of their addiction, one of the responses that's suggested is that we provide ready access to the drugs that they use. And you know, once you once you take accessing the medication out of the list of problems, then you can start to work on other things like 
you know, getting people, you know, to behave appropriately, getting people to show up for work, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, and so so treating opioid addiction as as a medical problem or a, as a healthcare problem and and working around the you know to resolve those issues, I think would certainly help. Um, doing a better job of treating chronic pain might mean that we resorted to prescribing opioids less often. And although the, you know, th there's a lot of discussion about what proportion of patients with chronic pain who are started on an opioid go on to develop drug addiction, you know, it's, it's more than some people think, but it's a lot less than other people think, you know, so, you know, the rate of opioid addiction in the population at large is somewhere around 5% in patients with chronic pain. It might be, it's probably higher than that. It varies depending on what you read, but it's probably somewhere around seven to 10%. So it's, it's more common for sure. On the other hand, it has the driver of chronic pain pushing the desire to use opioids. So if we were better at treating chronic pain, you know, maybe we wouldn't expose as many people to opioids. Um, and you know, so maybe there would be fewer people having problems from opioids. It, it, again, that, that is a complicated problem. And you have the issues of what do you do with a new patient who's never been on an opioid or what do you do with people who are already on opioids? How do you manage those different groups? So um, in terms of how to protect ourselves, you know, obviously being aware of risk factors like uh, histories of psychological distress, histories of abuse or traumatic events, um, family histories of addiction. You know, if you have five or six first degree relatives who are all addicted to drugs or alcohol or something like that, well, then, you know, it sounds like it's something you need to be concerned about. <clears throat> um, or, you know, what's the social setting you find yourself in? Um, yeah, a whole variety of things like that. So it's, um, you know, and then being aware and, you know, recognizing it as a health problem so that you talk about it as a health problem, not as a bad behavior that should be hidden or not discussed. I, I think that that's a big thing. Trying to minimize the stigma that's associated with opioid use, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate use. So that concludes the contents of this MediCurrent episode. Before we sign off, I wanted to say a big thank you to Dr. Buckley for his time and insight. It was very, very lovely talking to you. And hopefully with some more discussions surrounding opioids, we can work to lower their stigma among many communities. So just a big thank you to you for spending your time with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Myra. Thanks very much for the invitation.